Good morning, everyone. A blessed all saints to each one of you. I know you're all excited to hear me preach about the woman with the seven husbands, <laughs> but I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you on that. We're going to be in Haggai this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Really, throughout its history, the church has sometimes tended to idealize certain periods in its past. Maybe most often we idealize the early church. We assume, I guess, that the early church was a lot closer in time and culture to Jesus himself and to the apostles, so they must have been doing things right, right? And many new church movements have started with the idea of getting back to the way the early church did things. Let's pare away all these unnecessary traditions and innovations. Go back to when things were simple and pure. Lots of new movements have tried this, I think it's fair to say, with uh, mixed results. For one thing, it's not so easy to know or to agree on how the early church actually did things. It's a complicated question. It's buried in layers of history and some speculation. So what we tend to do instead is project our own ideas back onto the early church. If the early church was so pure, then they must have agreed with me, right? But for another thing, all we have to do is read the New Testament to see that the early church was actually not nearly so pure as we sometimes imagine. There were false teachers aplenty, false doctrine, dissension of various kinds. There were scandals. The church was playing favorites, preferring some groups over others. They mistreated the poor. They abused the sacraments. In other words, they acted pretty much the same way, ways that we do today. But it is a very innate human tendency, isn't it? To look back at certain times and places and think, if only we could get back to that. And it's not just in the church that we do this. We do this about pretty much everything. The golden age of Hollywood, back when they made the real classics, back when they had real movie stars, right? We do it with music. We do it with politics and society too. We romanticize certain decades or eras or certain presidencies, and we use them as a standard by which we judge our current situation. But really, our judgment of all these past times is always selective. Were things really better back then? How do we know? Why do we think so? What would someone who lived back then have said if you told them they were living in a golden age? And even if there are golden eras somewhere in the past, there's no use to try to get back to them. Time only moves in one direction. The past is gone unrecoverable. We live inescapably in the present. And sometimes being stuck in the past can make us miss what's going on now. Well, I'm going to suggest that our Old Testament lesson this morning is, at least in part, about nostalgia. The people of Israel have started to return from exile. 
The Persian king, Cyrus, has allowed them to begin to return and go back to the land of Israel. So about 70 years after they were taken into exile, a group of them have come back under the leadership of a high priest, Joshua, and a governor named Zerubbabel, who was actually from the line of David. And they returned to the ruined city of Jerusalem and started to rebuild it and to rebuild their lives. Now, in the first chapter of Haggai, uh, which we did not read today, the prophet Haggai calls them out for spending all their time and resources rebuilding their own fancy houses while the temple still lies in ruins. It's a matter of priorities. The temple is the center of their life in the land and of their identity as God's people. Neglecting it and neglecting the proper worship of God that he has called them to shows that they have not actually learned the lesson of the exile. They are continuing in the same pattern as their forebears. What's nice about the prophet Haggai is that when he speaks a word to the people of God, the people usually listen. Must have been nice. (laughs) Most of the old prophets got ignored or persecuted or even killed. But sure enough, when Haggai challenges the people to prioritize rebuilding the temple, they get the message and they get to work. About a month goes by between chapters 1 and 2, and they've made a start. They've set the foundations of the new temple. But they're getting discouraged. It's a massive job, and they're realizing that they don't have the resources that they would like to have. They're remembering Solomon's temple, how grand and opulent it had been. Remember, Solomon was the wealthiest king Israel had ever had. And the temple reflected his wealth. Solomon's temple had stood for something very special in the Israelites' self-consciousness. It represented the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and to Moses. During Solomon's reign, the nation was at peace, and they had great wealth and prosperity. And Solomon had finally replaced the tabernacle, a tent that they could move from place to place, with a temple, a permanent place for God to dwell with his people. There the sacrifices had been offered for a short time anyway, the way that God had commanded Moses to do them. For a little while, the people seemed to be enjoying the blessings that God had promised them. Now, it didn't last very long. In his own lifetime, Solomon himself began to worship idols, and he led the people astray into idol worship too. After he died, the kingdom was divided, and the rest of Israel's history up to the exile is a sad story of their decline into more and more idolatry, more and more injustice breaking their covenant with God until finally God brings his judgment upon them. Even so, Solomon's temple still lived in their imaginations as something unique and glorious, a marker of their identity as God's chosen people, a memory of a time when things seemed to have been the way God wanted them to be. And now as they start to rebuild the temple with far more limited resources than Solomon had had, They're feeling like their new temple is going to be a pretty sad replica of the original. That seems to be a big part of their discouragement here, that they don't have the resources that Solomon had. Solomon was unimaginably wealthy. 
They are recently returned exiles. They just can't make it the way it had been before. Have you ever tried to make something next to someone who's really, really good at it? (laughs) I remember going to art camp in high school every summer, and I remember the particular kind of discouragement of trying to paint a still life. You know, you sit all around the collection of vases and fruit in the middle of the room, and the person next to you is just miles past you and their skill and their experience. And maybe you start to enjoy it, and you start to feel a little pride in how yours is coming along. And then you glance over at what they're working on. I think that's a little of how the Israelites might have felt. (laughs) Um, Compared to the old temple, theirs just wasn't measuring up. In fact, the book of Ezra, which tells this same story, says that the older people, the people who were old enough to remember uh, Solomon's temple before it was destroyed, actually wept aloud because the new temple was so underwhelming. It's a very understandable reaction. Here they are, back in the land God had given them, trying to set up their lives again, and everything is just disappointing. The city is still mostly in ruins. Most of the Israelites are still back in exile in Persia. And now their attempt at a new temple is just nothing like they hoped it would be. What was the point? The golden age of Israel was already past, it seemed. So this is the situation when Haggai addresses them here in chapter 2. He starts by very pointedly just admitting what they're all feeling. Look in verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? He doesn't try to tell them, no, your temple isn't that bad. (laughs) It's actually pretty good. He just admits the situation. Yes, it is pretty underwhelming. But that doesn't change their task. Verse 4, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. But Haggai has two encouragements to offer to the people. First, he reminds them that however discouraged they're feeling, God is still with them. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. When you came out of Egypt, in the Exodus story, God had told them that the reason he was bringing them out of slavery was so that he could live with them. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I may dwell with them. And he promised that his presence would go with them. Uh, Back when Solomon had dedicated his temple, after Solomon Solomon had finished his great prayer of dedication, fire had come down from the sky and burned up the offerings and the sacrifices. And all the Israelites gathered for the temple's dedication had seen the fire come down, and they had watched God's glory enter into the temple. They knew that God was with them in Solomon's temple. And remember, too, in Moses' day, God's presence with his people had been shown by the pillar of cloud that went before them by day and the pillar of fire by night. So now God is saying, through his prophet Haggai, that that same presence is still with them now. 
And that in itself can give the people hope. Maybe they they felt like those are just old stories. But no, God has not abandoned them. As disappointing as their circumstances seem, as much of a letdown as this whole project is feeling like, they still have the same thing the Israelites had back in Moses' day. The same thing Solomon's temple was blessed with, the very presence of God in their midst. The same promise is ours today. God is present with us too by his spirit. As Jesus promised in the Gospel of John, he has sent the Comforter to us to live with us always. Jesus told his disciples just before he ascended into heaven, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. These promises are ours to keep and to cling to. But Haggai has another word of encouragement for the people. Look in verses 6 and 7. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with my glory, says the Lord. It's not only that God is with them in the present, He also gives them a future promise to hold on to. Their work, he says, is not in vain because God is going to fill this temple with his glory, the very temple they're feeling so disappointed in. Remember, they're feeling discouraged, particularly because they don't have the resources that Solomon had to make the temple really beautiful and impressive like it had been before. But God says not to worry about that. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, he says. I will shake all the nations and fill this temple with my glory. He's alluding here back to Isaiah chapter 60, I think. There, Isaiah saw a glorious vision of all the nations of the earth bringing their own treasures of all kinds to Jerusalem to adorn the temple. Here, Haggai says that God will shake the whole earth suggesting some great cosmic event or judgment. It's almost as if God is going to shake loose all the treasures of the earth from all nations to adorn his temple. The message to these people is clear. They don't don't need to worry about how beautiful or impressive their temple is because it's God who will accomplish his own purposes through it, not by their skill or ingenuity or the resources available to them, but simply by God's own sovereign work. This prophecy, of course, will be fulfilled when Jesus himself comes to this temple. It's at this temple that the baby Jesus will be dedicated, and it's in the courts of this temple that Holy Simeon will sing over the baby Jesus, what we say in evening prayer. And listen to what Simeon says. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten the nations and the glory of your people, Israel. The glory of your people, Israel. The glory of the people of Israel had come to this temple. But this prophecy also sees beyond this temple itself. This temple will eventually be destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. 
But what did Jesus say about the temple? Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. He was speaking about his own body. The temple is Jesus' own body, the church. And the Apostle Paul tells us that we ourselves, the church, are God's temple, and that his spirit dwells in our midst. The people had been looking backward, but God, through his prophet Haggai, turns their gaze forward in hope. Nostalgia can be a nice feeling, but it can also distract us if we're not careful. Solomon's temple was not really the ideal that they had made it out to be. God had new plans for his temple. He was doing something new, and he was inviting them to participate in it. It's like the prophet Isaiah had said, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? The dinginess of their immediate circumstances was blinding them to what God was actually doing. And Haggai calls on them to open their eyes and put their trust in God's future promise. Well, today is All Saints Sunday. The temple that those Israelites were working on way back in Haggai's time is today more glorious than they could ever have imagined. As Paul writes in his epistle to the Ephesians, the temple is now made up of the saints, all the saints, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, we are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God's temple is now adorned by the riches of every nation, just as Haggai foretold, as the saints from around the world bring their treasures to him. Haggai said, work. And as we carry on our own work here at Redeemer, we can rest in this Old Testament prophecy of Haggai. Maybe along with our sadness, our hurt, we're looking back on our own past as a church with a little bit of nostalgia too. I've heard some people say things like, church just doesn't feel like it used to anymore. <laughs> and I understand that. I feel that too. But when we feel discouraged, when we wonder what the future holds for us here at Church of the Redeemer, we can claim these old promises for ourselves today. He will never leave us. And he will fill this house with his glory. Just like those Israelites way back then, we can't see the end of the story. But it will be glorious. What we will be has not yet been made known. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.